Welcome to First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis, the birthplace of Congregational Humanism. We carry on that tradition of free thought today, dedicated to promoting a free search for truth, meaning, and justice. Our web address is firstunitarian.org. I'm David Breeden, Senior Minister. Welcome. So there's something about kids that makes them want to build a fort. I think it's almost genetic, and I know I've experienced it. It often starts at a young age with pillow forts made out of whatever cushions and blankets are available to create a cozy space away from the rest of the family. Then maybe when you're a little older, you level up and go outside and build a snow fort. A snow fort can be cozy too, but it can, may also have a strategic purpose if flinging snowballs is in the brew, is in the offing. And then depending on your climbing skills, you might graduate to a tree fort. I'm not totally clear on the difference between a tree fort and a tree house, but I think it's a matter of who's invited. <laughs> so forts might capture one's imagination at an early age, and those of us fortunate enough to travel might get to go visit some actual forts to fuel our interest. I was pretty little at the time, but I have a very clear memory of visiting fort, the big fort on Mackinac Island and taking in the sweeping views of Lake Huron. When I was in college, I was invited to visit Puerto Rico, where I was enraptured by the architecture of El Moro, a massive pile of stone that has been part of San Juan's history for nearly 500 years. And for families who really want to mix it up, there's a Civil War era historic site in Tennessee called Fort Pillow. It's named after an actual Confederate general and it's just one of hundreds of forts across the American landscape. So if your childhood has some parallels to mine, maybe you grew up visiting forts and making forts and thinking of them as protective and benign and scenic. I went through life that way for quite some time. I first visited Fort Snelling the same year I went to El Moro. I went in with a tourist's perspective and took in the period costumes and the well-restored rooms. It wasn't until some years later that my view got complexified, when I better understood Fort Snelling's history and the colonizing of Minnesota. This picture is of a concentration camp for Dakota people in the 1860s at our Fort Snelling. Forts were protective, all right, but they were quite selective in whom they protected, and they were dismal places for everyone else. More recently, I was struck by a tweet from a website called the Decolonial Atlas, which has a very interesting collection of non-traditional maps. The website offered this map showing the locations of hundreds of forts across, the, across North America, and it made this comment. Settlers live on a, a continent full of places named Fort, but refuse to admit that it's stolen land. Like, what do you think all those forts were for? The answer is, of course, that conquering, killing, and confiscating were exactly what those forts were for. That's hardly the benign view I grew up with, but it's a more well-rounded and fully honest perspective. And I'm grateful to have this more complex, more complete view of history. But as we are seeing nationwide, not everyone responds to a revised historical outlook with gratitude, or even a matter-of-fact acceptance. Reality can be upsetting. 
And right now, around the country, there are many new laws going into effect to ban public schools from teaching ideas that can cause anyone to, quote, feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress because of their race or sex. Some of the folks promoting these laws, which are on the books in places like Iowa and several southern states, the folks promoting these laws claim to be for, claim to be for small government, but they've taken to legislating which emotions are allowable in history class. Our assembly theme this month at FUS is holding history, and the topic could hardly be better timed. History is a hot potato right now, hard for many to hold, and there's an organized assault on some of the facts that make up the true stories of our country. And our humanist and Unitarian values, our humanist and Unitarian Universalist values around facts and reason and inclusion call on us to pay attention on behalf of history and the many different kinds of people who created it. How did we get here? Well, these troubled waters have a lot of tributaries. A main factor is that millions of Americans received truly terrible educations in American history. No, not just boring history educations, like the famous one famously depicted in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but instead egregiously inaccurate ones. Would history lie to you? Would the history books lie to you? Yes, they would, and they did. We are discovering more and more misrepresentations all the time. This illustration is a little difficult to look at. It's from the official State of Virginia history textbook from 1957. It shows a well-dressed man of African heritage and his family being greeted with a handshake on the deck of a ship by his new owner, mm. by his enslaver. As anyone with a real history education can tell you, not a thing about this is realistic. And the wordings in the book are equally outrageous, with sentences like this one. A feeling of strong affection existed between master and slaves in a majority of Virginia homes. Mm. The book says that many enslaved people were taught to read and write, when the reality was that such teaching was illegal. And the book describes plantation life as happy and prosperous for all. The book was written by politicians in the years after public schools and the military were officially desegregated, moves that freaked out white racists. This book's narratives are utterly farcical, and yet this was the official Virginia history book for more than 20 years. The lasting damage to the truth and to history is astounding and it helps explain the huge gaps in racial understanding that we have today. Now, of course, up here in the far north, it's tempting to get smug and roll our eyes about what was happening down south in the late Jim Crow era. But disinformation and whitewashing haven't been limited to a particular region. For example, I and millions of other American kids grew up on Schoolhouse Rock, the peppy little Saturday morning cartoons that offered lessons about grammar science, and American history. Gen Xers and probably their parents can still sing these catchy ditties today. Schoolhouse Rock got the equivalent of billions of views in its day, and it helped countless kids learn their conjunctions and adverbs and math. But a few of these cartoons did not do us or history any favors. 
The lyrics to one cartoon called Melting Pot tell the story of American diversity entirely from the perspective of European immigration, which had peaked 60 years earlier. Unmentioned are the millions of people who already lived on the continent. Unmentioned are the millions more stolen from Africa. Unmentioned are the millions of immigrants who didn't come from Europe. And the melting pot ideal of assimilation, that the idea that immigrants from around the world come here and blend into a single European-based culture, this idea has long been out of favor. It's been replaced with newer metaphors like a mosaic or even a salad bowl. But the idea of melting into an easy-to-digest sameness was reinforced for so long that it's hard to dislodge. A second cartoon called Elbow Room celebrates manifest destiny, the idea that whites were destined by God to take over the continent. This cheery song makes reference to trampling down the wilderness and repeats the motto, In God We Trust. And the whole cartoon would leave a kid to think that the land was devoid of humans prior to colonization. A blank slate, just waiting for new arrivals in need of more elbow room. I don't mean to beat up on Schoolhouse Rock, because overall, its cartoons did a lot of good, and even its creators later acknowledged that they would have left out the idea of manifest destiny. But as they were making elbow room, a good question for someone to ask might have been, what do you think all those forts were for? So we have all these visions of American history that are comforting and comfortable to a shrinking, minor shrinking majority that will soon be a minority. And these ideas are deeply ingrained in the national psyche. Lots of kids who saw Schoolhouse Rock went on to study very little additional American history, or science, or grammar for that matter. And if they did pursue more history, they may well have gotten more of the same narrow perspective. So their personal outlooks never got revised. These comforting perspectives can lead to a belief in a kind of baked-in benevolence. And people get very upset when you tell them that the world is not as benign as they have believed it to be. Among scholars who study white supremacy cultures, such as Tema Okun, this is known as the right to comfort. The assumption that those with power have a right to emotional and psychological comfort. As Okun puts it, this assumption supports the tendency to blame the person or group causing discomfort or conflict, rather than addressing the issues being named. Another way to look at it is that, is that some people get more upset about hearing that slavery was horrible than they do about the fact that it was horrible, about the, the fact that millions of lives were destroyed. The poem we heard earlier, so beautifully read by Perry, was called Anger by Lynn Unger, and it captures what can happen to those whose comfort is taken away. The world is not what you were promised, and you are being asked to care about suffering and danger that could break your heart if you let it in. Many people don't let it in, and they get angry instead. In a complicated way, all this reminds me of a song from the musical The Wiz, the famous African-American version of the Wizard of Oz, Oz story. In The Wiz, the Wicked Witch of the West character oversees a sweatshop, and she serves as a metaphor for slavery. And this witch, named Eveline, sings a lively song called, Don't Nobody Bring Me No Bad News. In the lyrics, she wakes up each day already negative, she says, 
So she doesn't need any more negative information. And if you want to be her buddy, those are the rules. She even says she'll make you an offer you can't refuse if you bring her bad news. She threatens those who would tell her the truth. She's a cartoonish character in the movie, but there are all kinds of real-life Americans with the same attitude and making similar threats. These are the people who do not want facts or historical narratives that might cause them to feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress. Unfortunately, proponents of white supremacy and authoritarianism find that there is much to gain politically by stirring up these sentiments. It worked in 1994, right before that year's midterm elections. A well-respected set of new federal education standards became a political football right around that time. It scared white parents around the country. And white people voting out of fear vote to the right. The same strategy is working right now at the local and state level with manufactured controversies about how racial history is taught and about the freedom to go without a mask. But as we know from COVID-19, bad news doesn't go away when you deny the facts. In fact, the opposite happens, and the crisis is magnified. History and facts are clearly suffering in the public square. Fortunately, the degree of suffering varies from square to square, and there's actually some good news these days if you look around. First, here in Minnesota, and actually in lots of areas, extremist, anti-science, anti-literature, anti-learning about race candidates pretty much lost their efforts to take over school boards. We've had contentious public meetings and record number of elect elected officials resigning or not running again, but fact-based candidates largely prevailed. This is definitely worth celebrating, but at the same time, those of us with level-headed school boards should not get too comfortable because a lot of the shenanigans we see around the country happens at the state level. The state level is where that horrible Virginia textbook came from, and it's state legislatures that are passing those laws that ban teachers, that talking, that ban teachers from talking about anything that might cause discomfort or distress. So if you are happy with how your school district approaches history and race, and if you don't want to see your local officials overruled by legislators from around the state, you will want to pay close attention to next year's elections and support candidates who share your values. Local officials who are bravely doing the right thing are just some of the people doing good work these days. Recently, I found myself inspired by the story of someone who, what I, would, who I wouldn't even have imagined that they existed. The inspiration came from a Wired magazine article about a Wikipedia editor. No one will ever make a blockbuster movie about a Wikipedia editor. But this person is a hero nonetheless. As you may know, Wikipedia is an enormous online encyclopedia that is written and edited mainly by volunteers. And until I read the Wired article, I, I didn't know that people sympathetic to Nazis have been going into Wikipedia and influencing some of the pages about World War II. They were inserting phrases that glorified Nazi officers and minimized some of the horrors they committed. And these editors were doing so by citing questionable sources for the footnotes and, or offering just pure hearsay. Enter Xenia Kaufman, who grew up in Soviet-era Russia. 
Kaufman has little patience for disinformation given her background, and so she has worked since 2015 to scrub rubbish from Wikipedia. In the past several years, she has made 97,000 edits. They keep track of every single edit. And she's created more than 3,000 new pages to provide accurate information. She currently keeps watch over 2,000 articles. She gets a notification every time someone makes a change so, so she can check it out and make sure there isn't backsliding. Like those school board members holding the line, Kaufman could literally be doing anything else with her free time, but she's choosing to take care of history and the truth. And historians of all kinds can continue to do an incredible job of broadening the stories we hear. This work of expanding the narratives beyond the conquests and political act, acts of white male leaders blossomed in the, first blossomed in the 1960s with the rise of African-American history and women's history. And these large-scale expansions of the narrative continue in journalism and academia. You may have heard of a newly published book called The Dawn of Nearly Everything, A New History of Humanity by David Graeber and David Wengro. The authors challenged the normally accepted timeline of human history, that we went from hunter-gatherers to, to agricultural people to hierarchical city-states. They argued that things were not nearly so linear and that humans were not merely carried along by technological and ecological trends. But rather, they'd say that people made all kinds of choices about how to organize their societies. We do not have time this morning for me to read you the book's 700 pages, which seem like a very likely candidate for our next Big Read, Big Read Book Club. But I want to briefly share a couple of narratives. One is about Cahokia, the once great city that existed not far from where St. Louis is today. I've mentioned Cahokia before, and I actually finally got there about three weeks ago. Cahokia was a prosperous but authoritarian society that existed for about 300 years before abruptly collapsing in the 1300s. Various theories for its demise have included a shift in climate, or that they practiced, the people there practiced had poor agricultural practices. But the authors of the book float an entirely different reason. Maybe people left because they didn't like it. Maybe they didn't like living under tyranny and decided to ease on down the road. It's amazing when you think about it how we dehumanize our long ago ancestors into passive creatures when they were fully capable of making choices, just like us. Right now, the population of the city of St. Louis is one-third of what it was in 1950. If modern people can pick up and relocate because they wish to live differently, why wouldn't earlier humans do the same? A second narrative from the book is an even bigger upending. So many of us were raised on the idea that Europeans came to this continent to civilize the people who were already living here. Again, another dehumanizing viewpoint. But Graeber, an anthropologist, and Wengro, an archaeologist, describe a well-researched opposite scenario. It turns out that, they, that a group of indigenous people in eastern North America became highly critical when they learned about European civilization. They found it overly competitive, cruel, dogmatic, irrational, oppressive, and rife with inequality. 
This sounds a little bit like the culture we live in today, but this was centuries ago. And they found, they found documents with these viewpoints in them. The book, and the book's authors make the case that when the indigenous critique made its way back to France and it was shared among the intellectual class, it began to cause significant self-reflection on European values. And this examination helped bring about the Enlightenment. There are, of course, people who would find this account distressing as it elevates indigenous people and does not help the reputation of white European colonists. To those who are distressed, I might recommend the quiet comfort of a pillow fort. <laughs> For the rest of us, I close with this thought from Xenia Kaufman, the Wikipedia editor. The work she is doing is time consuming, it involves conflict, and it's never ending. But Kaufman doesn't view the protection of history as a battle. In fact, she, steer clear, she steers clear of all war metaphors. She instead thinks of history as real estate. You have to have a security system, she says. You have to maintain your house. And human history is a house with room enough for everyone's story. Thanks for listening. You can find much more about humanism and what's happening at First Unitarian Society in Minneapolis by visiting our website at firstunitarian.org.